I'm haunted by this idea of life is passing you by and you're not paying it attention or that there are these things around you that you could be changed by or it could be meaningful or connections you could be making that simply are not rendered to you in your reality because of this very stable and hyper-optimized pattern of attention that you've learned. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more creativity and meaning in your daily work through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is Jenny O'Dell, a writer and artist whose work I discovered for the first time back in 2017, when she published an 11,000-word essay on Medium called How to Do Nothing. It was a strange, slow, deeply thoughtful piece about the power of activities that cannot be optimized. Listening to another person, taking care of ourselves, contemplating a new idea, and one of her personal favorites, bird watching, or bird noticing, as Jenny prefers to call it. After the piece went viral, Jenny ended up elaborating on the concepts in her essay to create the new book, How to Do Nothing. In this conversation, we explored the idea of withdrawing your attention as an act of resistance. What if we decided that making likable content wasn't the best use of our time and energy and directed our attention elsewhere? What if we let go of the idea that we should always be using our time in ways that are productive and opened ourselves up to the meandering present and all of the serendipity available to us there? What if we spent less time skimming through digital space and more time on the messy realness of engaging in face-to-face conversations? When all of our attention is absorbed in the urgencies of the moment, processing the next email or the next tweet, we lose perspective and we lose context. And as you'll find out in this episode, that is exactly where the meaning lies. Let's dive in. So let's start at ground zero. Your book is titled How to Do Nothing. When you say doing nothing, what exactly do you mean? And I'm asking because I think it's a little more complex than most people might guess just from you know reading the cover of the book. You talk about this idea of being non-instrumental with how we use our time. What does that mean? I think, you know, doing nothing is obviously not doing actually nothing, um, but it looks like nothing from the point of view of how we traditionally think of productivity um, or even the idea of having something to show for your time. So I think, you know, things like listening or observing or even sort of like taking care of yourself, um, these are kind of activities that don't really seem to go anywhere. They don't really have like deliverables, so to speak. And so all of those things would fall under the umbrella of doing nothing. Well, and a lot of activities, right, that relate to self-care, really, right? Because those are things where there's not really a deliverable beyond well-being. Yeah, or sleep um, is one that I think about a lot where, um, you know, I was inspired by this book called 24-7. I think the subtitle is Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep. (laughs) Um, And it's just about... Uh, this kind of ongoing effort to appropriate sleep. Like from a capitalist point of view, sleep is sort of annoying because it doesn't 
we don't even really fully understand like what's happening is still people are researching that um we just know that it's necessary but we don't really know how um and it's this kind of vestige of human animality that you kind of can't get around um which is why i love sleep <laughs> i want to talk about context how it impacts our time our creativity and even our ability to take political action you write extensively about the attention economy as creating a kind of context collapse. And this is a topic that I'm really passionate about as well. And in many ways, this podcast is an attempt to kind of create more context around how we think about the way we live and the way we work. And so let's talk about context collapse, maybe first in relation to the self and how we think about how we should spend our time, spend being the operative word there, because this idea that time is money is really deeply embedded now in the way that we think about our time, right? You know, time is money is is mapped to like a very specific set of values, like needing to produce something or needing to be able to show something. So if all of your time is mapped to that value system, all of these things begin to look expensive. Anything that doesn't kind of like fit into that or can't be appropriated by that um, which to me is is very troubling because it just so happens that to me those are the most like meaningful parts of myself and are involved in the most meaningful parts of my life. Right. So what you're saying is that anything that isn't um, palpably productive starts to seem like it's not worth your time. Yeah. Or or even if you have the luxury to do it, it feels yeah it feels sort of expensive or something. And you're already, you know, before you even come to that activity, you're already thinking about it in that way. Well, maybe we can reverse a little bit and break this down in a little more detail. Again, this idea of context collapse. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail in terms of how this kind of applies to that idea of time is money, right? It's kind of about like these these different um, identities in a way, right? Yeah. So the the term context collapse, um, I learned about it from Dana Boyd, um, who's a, a media scholar. And so when I was reading up on her um, articulation of that idea, she refers to a book where um, the, the author is describing context collapse actually in a pre-internet um, situation. So he's talking more about TV and other forms of media. But basically, he gives this thought experiment that I think is like the most helpful way for me to think about context collapse, which is um, he says, okay, so I, I went on a, a vacation as a, a college student and I had a really great time and I had all these different experiences. And when I came back, I had a version of the story that I told my parents and I had a version that I told my teachers and I had a version that I told my friends. And obviously those are different. And then he says, you know, what if someone threw me a surprise party and all of those groups of people are there and someone says, how was your trip? Um, and then you have to give an accounting of your trip that somehow doesn't offend any of those groups of people, but also appeals to all of them, which is actually impossible to do. So you either end up, you know, offending someone or you kind of end up with a kind of a lowest common denominator, boring, beige, you know, version of your, of your trip. And so Dana Boyd, you know, very astutely observed that this would, this applies a lot, obviously online, where you have situations where you're, you're expressing yourself, but you don't know the context that you're expressing yourself in. So, I mean, we've all seen examples of people who unwillingly become either Twitter celebrities or laughingstocks overnight because they kind of just thought that they were speaking to friends and not realizing that, you know, 
someone could come along and notice this and it gets retweeted like a thousand times overnight. And that's an extreme example, but um, I think it just speaks to this loss of um, temporal and spatial context that we, that we formerly expressed ourselves in and, and formed our identities in. Um, and so, you know, with the context collapse also comes the collapse of, of these different identities that you would have in these different spheres. Right. And part of that is like you used to have your nine to five work identity and then you had your identity when you went home. And then, you know, as you said with this guy telling the story, maybe you have a different identity when you're talking to your friends. But now we're so accessible all the time that there's much more of a blur, right, which kind of leads to this this sort of confusion about like, well, when do I have to be productive, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, part of it too that he mentions in the book is if, if, if everyone has access to all of the things that you've said in other contexts, it, it would tempt you to sort of want to be consistent, right? Like you wouldn't want to, in that, that collapsed context, like appear to be like changing your mind or inconsistent which becomes a problem, especially now, right? Because you can search through anyone's tweets and see all of the things that they've, all of the ways they've expressed themselves in the past. And, and that also really troubles me because I think um, changing, changing your mind is not something that should necessarily be vilified. Um, I, I change my mind when I learn something new or that I was wrong. Um, and that to me proves that I'm, you know, learning something and growing. Um, whereas that's kind of anathema to someone who's concerned with a personal brand where, much like any other brand, you're expected to just be completely consistent over time. Right. And I wanted to talk about this idea of the personal brand um, specifically, and it's so interesting that we're doing this interview now. I just did an interview with um, Debbie Millman on this podcast, and we were talking about this idea as well, this idea that brands are consistent and flawless, and they deliver a really predictable experience. And, you know, how we as humans, as animals, right, are naturally messy and inconsistent and flawed. Um, and I wanted to read a little excerpt from your book. You write, by contrast, at its most successful, an algorithmic honing in would seem to incrementally entomb me as an ever more stable image of what I like and why. It certainly makes sense from a business point of view. When the language of advertising and personal branding enjoins you to, quote, be yourself, what it really means is be more yourself, where yourself is a consistent and recognizable pattern of habits, desires, and drives that can be more easily advertised to and appropriated like units of capital. So you talk about this idea of how we each have these kind of multiple selves. And, and as you were just saying, right, that's important to personal growth and being able to, to flow between these different identities and to really evolve and how the attention economy and social media in particular really constricts that. Um, so I wanted to go a little deeper into just this idea that you were kind of just alluding to where it creates a situation where you're just not even really allowed to change your mind. It's, it's actually, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it's reminding me of, um, you know, when I started teaching in 2013, Snapchat was still really popular among my students. And I remember thinking that, you know, it made so much sense, if you, especially if you're younger, to favor a, a disappearing media because um, it allows you to express yourself. And obviously, like especially again at that age, that's so much of, of becoming the person that you are. But it makes total sense to not want to have 
this trailing you, you know, this kind of like ossified pile of all these past utterances that you've made. And so I think, you know, we all kind of suffer from some version of that now where it's, um, you know, starting with Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, famous statement that if you have more than one identity, it implies a lack of integrity. There's now this kind of idea that you, you spend your life building this kind of monolithic personal brand that is easily identifiable um, and has kind of clear boundaries. And to me, it's like, I feel like if you went fully down that path, I don't know how many of those decisions are really yours anymore. I mean, I give the example of Discover Weekly on Spotify, which like, don't get me wrong, I find Discover Weekly very useful, you know, especially to like play music in class and or just have, you know, music playing in the background. But um, it's, I've used it for so long and the algorithm is sort of so good that um, I wouldn't call it predictable necessarily, but I'm I'm rarely kind of like, very surprised, you know? Um, and then I, I contrast that with, you know, listening to the radio in the car and, you know, it might be hit or miss, but once in a while I hear this song and I'm just like, what is this song? And why do I like it so much? Um, and then I kind of, you know, that's a, a whole new kind of branch of, um, to kind of go down. So, um, I, I kind of equate like those moments of, of being surprised and making decisions that kind of don't necessarily quote unquote make sense in your, your sort of um, ad profile um, as like having free will and just being alive. Right. And having the opportunity to expand, do something unexpected, right? Um, I wanted to read you at this really beautiful quote from Audre Lorde in the book on the importance of these multiple selves. Um, And she writes, as a black lesbian feminist, comfortable with the many different ingredients of my identity, and a woman committed to racial and sexual freedom from oppression, I find I am constantly being encouraged to pluck out some one aspect of myself and present this as the meaningful whole, eclipsing or denying the other parts of the self. But this is a destructive and fragmenting way to live. My fullest concentration of energy is available to me only when I integrate all of the parts. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think, you know, we're alive. We're just like anything else that's alive. Um, I mean, if you look at any organism or ecosystem, at some point it becomes hard to draw the distinction. And I don't mean that in some sort of hand-wavy way. I mean, actually, literally, um, one of my favorite examples is, you know, we have a lot of oak trees here, obviously, in Oakland. And they have uh, basically this symbiotic fungus that grows in the ground. So certain types of mushrooms will grow around these oak trees. And, you know, it's, I wouldn't say that, you know, oak trees and mushrooms are not the same thing. But if you actually look at the, the area where they interface, so if you look in the soil and you look at like where the, the fungal filaments are, um, not only do they grow, they kind of form these like sheaths around the roots, but they, the actual fungal cells grow in the space in between the, the tree cells. Um, so it's, it, on a material level, it becomes hard to distinguish them. And then on a functional level, they need each other. So trees that grow without them are stunted. And then the, the fungus obviously needs the, the tree, the tree roots as well. So they're kind of, in a way, the fungus is basically functioning like an extension of the tree. And I, you just see that everywhere, like anywhere in any ecology, even the human body, right? There's, um, it's kind of hard to draw a boundary around, um, even the self, um, but just even different sections of the body. So I kind of see 
identity in a similar way where it's not, I'm not saying that, you know, like you don't exist, obviously, like there is some kind of like, there is a self, right. But that's kind of about as much as you can say. Um, It's really hard to kind of draw a line around the self and say like, this is me and this isn't me, or this is influencing me and this isn't influencing me. Um, And, and I think that there are some, you know, there's a certain mentality from which that is horrifying, Um, especially, you know, someone who is into control and optimization and, and kind of like living your best life in the kind of shallowest sense possible. Um, Whereas to me, I find that hugely exciting, not only exciting, but also just a relief to, to admit that and just kind of accept this thing that is already a truth and then kind of see where it takes you and, um, and know that you you know, every day is not just another day like the last one. Every day is like something in which something new could happen and you could change. We have to pause for a quick break now, but stay with me. After the jump, Jenny and I talk about the act of journaling as the earliest incarnation of Twitter and why our ability to empathize disappears as we move deeper into the digital world. This episode is brought to you by Harvest. We all know that we want more time to do the work that matters. But if you don't know exactly how you're spending your time, it's hard to change your habits. Enter Harvest, a simple and intuitive time tracking tool that helps shine a light on exactly how you're investing your time. It creates easy-to-understand visual reports that track how much time you're spending on specific projects, and helps you estimate how long it will take to complete future projects based on that data. Harvest also makes getting paid painless by automatically generating and sending invoices to clients based on your tracked hours and allowing them to pay you seamlessly online. And don't worry, Harvest can slide right into your existing workflow. Desktop and mobile apps let you track time on multiple devices and integrations with popular tools like Asana, Basecamp, and Trello allow you to bring harvest timers into the tools you're already using. To make the most of your time, visit getharvest.com slash hurry slowly to start a free trial today and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Have you been thinking about pulling the trigger on a new online identity, but you just keep putting it off? Well, here's a little story about how I tricked myself into making a new website. Step one, I plunked down the cash to buy a new domain. Step two, I had some sweet new business cards made featuring my domain name. And step three, I then had to build the website and activate the domain, or I could never give out any of the new business cards that I was so excited about. Pretty crafty, right? So if you're ready to take that first step to invest in a new online identity, the place to start is Hover.com. With 400 plus domain name extensions to choose from, you're sure to find a name that matches your passion. And lately, I've been feeling particularly fond of the .me extension. Why beat around the bush, right? Especially if you're looking for a domain to showcase your portfolio or your work as a talented individual proprietor. Hover also offers stellar customer support. They never try to upsell you. And they have nifty features like Hover Connect that make it dead simple to connect your domain to popular website builders with just a few clicks. 
So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. So I wanted to carry this idea of context and context collapse over into talking um, more specifically about ideas and creativity, because I think there's this really interesting tension between participating on social media and nurturing creative ideas. Um, On the one hand, platforms like Twitter ask us to kind of parcel out our ideas and our thoughts immediately as we have them, right? Instantaneously. But in order to formulate complex ideas, we, in a sense, need to withhold those ideas and to incubate them so that they can ripen into something more complex. I'm curious how you kind of think about that tension. It's very natural to need to kind of like talk through your ideas, whether that's with yourself or with someone else. And because we are all now pretty accustomed, not all, a lot of people are accustomed to Twitter, something like Twitter as like a casual space where you you kind of throw off these expressions now and then that are not, you know, um, it's not assumed that they're kind of super thought through. I think it might seem like a natural space to do something like that. Um, but then I think, you know, the problem with that is then you're, you're subjecting these very fragile kind of like seeds of an idea to that context collapse. And, and it's sort of like, right, like if you make anything, um, you have to put it out in the world and, and it's going to get subject to um, all kinds of things like, you know, this, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like this drive to make an idea into a product is just like something that you will encounter if you put something in the world that's inevitable. But I think, you know, there's no reason you should have to subject the very beginning of your idea to those forces. Like that seems like you're you're sort of killing it before it's even had a chance to grow. So I think, I mean, personally, just from my own process, um, I think if you, if you need to have a dialogue, which I think you do, um, to kind of like bring your ideas to the next stage, um, you know, talking to a friend, or some friends about it has, you know, always been really helpful for me. Um, and then, you know, I was looking back, like I have journals going back to basically second grade. Um, and I, I was thinking about it recently. I was like, Oh, like this was my Twitter, like in a weird way. Right. It was like, this was like, you know, I was constantly like talking about what was happening to me just to myself. Um, but even when you write something in a journal, you're addressing it it's as if you're talking to someone else, like you're, you're having to externalize your ideas. And so, and it's something I continue to do like every day. So I, I wonder sometimes about the things that, that we post to Twitter that actually should just go in a journal. So let's move on from context to talking about time. You quote John Cleese of Monty Python fame uh, from a talk he gave about creativity, and he lists the ingredients that he thinks are necessary for creativity. And they are one, space, two, time, three, time, four, confidence, and five, humor. Could you talk about how you view time as part of the creative process and how you think the attention economy is impacting that? So I think the attention economy 
um, carries with it this idea, um, again, you know, if time is money, that, that you would need to have something to show at the end of having spent a certain amount of time. Um, and that is really problematic for something like a creative process because, um, as anyone who's made anything knows, um, a large part of the, of the process doesn't look like anything. Um, so, uh, you know, I have, I teach art, art students at Stanford, um, and a lot of them, well, I teach art to students who have not taken art classes. So I have to explain to them that they should always, you know, leave twice as much time as they think is possible or is necessary. Um, for their projects and know that some of that isn't going to look like making art. It might look like just talking to a friend or walking around. And I have personally found that that, that section, that percentage of my process has just been getting bigger and bigger. And it can be really hard to argue for because like I said, it doesn't look like anything. Uh, it can look indulgent, um, you know, just like walking around and around, not producing anything. Uh, it's sort of invisible, but it's, you know, at least in my experience of making things is just, you kind of, it's the thing that undergirds everything else. Um, and so you have to just kind of blindly trust that you need to, you need that amount of time. Um, even though it doesn't, you know, even on a calendar, just like sometimes I'll just put like a blank gray across an entire week and it doesn't have anything in it. It's just that that is just the amount of time that I know that I need in which like something, um, will happen. Right. That incubation period that we were talking about. And I think the calendar is such a great example of how that time has been sort of taken away from us. You know, people who work in offices, um, you know, but who are very often knowledge workers who have to do some type of creative work. You know, we have these shared calendars now. And when you have a shared calendar, this sort of, you know, iconic thing, right, that you put on a shared calendar is a meeting. And so that kind of teaches you to think that like meetings are the most important thing. And there's no way, like no good way, as you just sort of outlined to represent like this very, um, you know, kind of ineffable part of the creative process that is maybe just reflecting or thinking or browsing or researching or talking. There's like no good way to represent that on the calendar. And so you're starting to, you know, and th and that's filtering into the way that we work. Like people can't find the time to do that work because they literally can't like represent it on this thing that we all use, which is the calendar. Yeah. Or you can't make a case for it. I think, you know, it's hard to um, explain in concrete utilitarian terms that you could describe other, you know, uses of time and uh, why you would need something like that without sounding sort of I don't know, hand wavy. Um, so, but it's, but it's real. It's like definitely, um, I mean, I wrote this book in, in the summer and I have summers off from teaching. Um, and I was able to write it because I didn't really, I just had lots of time. Um, and you know, that's the other thing that was kind of a, a challenge to kind of talk about in the book is like, you know, a lot of, a lot of people just don't even have, don't have that time. Like can't put the block in the calendar, you know? So I think it's, you know, more and more comes to look like a luxury and in that process becomes even harder to kind of argue for the value of. Well, so maybe we can talk about bringing, we were just talking about context and then we were talking about sort of time. Um, I really liked one of the examples you use in the book as you talk about um, the monk, mystic, Thomas Merton, and this idea of 
needing to remove yourself from the world for a period of contemplation in order to recreate or sort of re-understand your context in the world and to formulate a plan of action, at which point you can then sort of re-engage with the world. Um, and I think about this oscillation a lot, this idea of, I think about it in terms of sort of zooming out to get perspective and then zooming in to take action. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that um, idea of needing to remove yourself from the world or, or disconnect to create context. It's interesting that you mentioned zooming in and zooming out because um, a lot of my my visual artwork from you know years ago was um, kind of collages or uh, configurations of things that were cut out from Google Earth. Um, so it was a f- favorite pastime of mine to kind of like scroll over Google Earth for hours and you know like collect hundreds of swimming pools and cut them out and arrange them. Um, you know, speaking of time and attention, <laughs> it's very time consuming. But you know, at the time, I was just so drawn to to satellite imagery that I almost didn't really think about why um, until, you know, actually recently, it's made more sense to me that I felt drawn to looking at the familiar every day from the point of view of something that's very not familiar and not everyday, which is a satellite perspective. I mean, that's not even a, that's not even a perspective that a human really would expect to see. Um, And so from this like non-human perspective, you're looking at you know, like tennis courts and stadiums and things that you kind of pass by every day and wouldn't question and always kind of see from the same angle um, and how strange and, and fragile and specific they look from this other point of view. So, and like you know, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved taking off in a plane. Just like the moment where you can see that transition happen where it's like, okay, here's the kind of familiar urban fabric. And then, you know, slowly it kind of resolves into um, okay, this is the part of the town that has industrial stuff over here. And, um, you kind of get us, or like, this is the, the more suburban area. And you kind of see like the shape of the hills around that kind of inform the shape of the city, just the kind of different layers of understanding that are available, um, as you kind of shift between these perspectives. And I think the, that what I've learned, especially from making that, that artwork, um, is that the, the, you can sort of get the most not out of spending all your time in one or another perspective, but just constantly moving back and forth between them, like using information from one to understand something in the other. So um, I had a, a solo show in 2014 that was all about infrastructure. It was like, you know, wastewater treatment plants and um, power plants and things like that. Um, so that was all the imagery in the gallery. And we scheduled um, a tour of the San Francisco wastewater treatment plant um, for 9 a.m. on a Saturday, which I did not think anybody was going to come to, but it actually filled up and we had to schedule another one. And I went on the first tour and it was really amazing to, you know, look at, you know, be in the gallery, look at satellite imagery, isolated, you know, cut out imagery of wastewater treatment plants, and then just you'd literally get on a bus and go to a wastewater treatment plant and walk through it. It was like walking through it. We had this kind of bird's eye sense of like where we were in the plant and what different structures were for. And then if you go back and look at that image, you now have the experience of having been inside. So it informs, um, you know, the the way that you look at the structures. So I think that's true of a lot of things um, in, in just life generally, right? Where it's like, 
it's not about, as I say in the book, you know, like moving to the the hills uh, or like throwing your phone in the ocean and just like retreating forever. Um, but it's also not about being constantly entrenched in the present. It's it's about kind of going back and forth between the two. And if we were to ground this in, you know, the attention economy and all of this technology that we're talking about now, right, it, it's almost as if those technologies, those things very much are constantly trying to ground you only in the moment or kind of only an in instant gratification and, and only in a very specific perspective. And sometimes a perspective that even seems like it's, I guess, democratic. Like if you think about like Google Maps, right, you think you're seeing like an actual representation of what, you know, the streets around you look like, but Google Maps only like, you know, bubbles up and surfaces and shows you like certain stores and certain things and stuff like that, right? So we're kind of constantly looking at the world through this very like limited kind of single perspective when we're, we're using all these different apps and technologies many times. Yeah. I mean, I even have a, I have a few projects that are kind of about that, that about street view specifically, because I think street view is a great example of what you just said, which is it, um, it, it wants to appear sort of like a, a neutral, um, picturing of, of the present, but it's obviously made out of photographs that were taken, uh, at a very specific time, just like any other photograph. So it's immediately out of date. And it was also taken under certain conditions. So yeah, you do end up getting um, a very specific type of perspective, um, and and then you, it, the more and more seamless it starts to become, the more and more you risk forgetting that it is a representation and that there is like something outside of it. I mean, I I think a lot about how you know if you spend the more time you spend on Twitter, like if you're the kind of person who gets embroiled in like Twitter, like whatever is the drama of Twitter today, right? I feel like there's always at least one. It's almost like reality TV or something, right? Like people love um, to sort of like watch these conflicts play out. And the more time you spend there, the, the easier it is to forget that like, you know, Twitter is like one slice of reality. <laughs> not everyone is on Twitter. There's like many, many people who are not on Twitter. There's things that happen that aren't on Twitter. Um, but but when you're there, similar to Street View, it's like hard to remember that there's all of this stuff that's being left out of the picture. Yeah, well, and that I think makes this a good time to talk about um, an interesting distinction that you made in the book. You talk about the difference between connectivity and sensitivity, um, as described by the Italian activist Francisco Berardi. Could you describe what the difference is between those two things, connectivity and sensitivity? Yeah. I, and that distinction of his is super helpful for me um, early on in thinking about, yeah, communication online and, and why it's so different from, you know, say talking to someone in person or, or just talking to one person even. So connectivity is, um, as he describes it, is kind of um, like a, a neat transmission of information in which the information doesn't change and neither the, the kind of sender nor receiver changes. And it happens um, very quickly. And it's kind of all about compatibility versus incompatibility. It's almost like, you know, do you have an HDMI or a VGA cable? You either do or do not have the right one. And if you have the right one, then, then the information goes through. So, um, so my example of that is, um, uh, you know, something with a really incendiary headline being shared very, very quickly on Facebook by like-minded people um, who maybe haven't even read the article. Um, 
and we're just sort of this agreeing, right? Like we're compatible. And then, and a trigger would also be, uh, well, certain types of triggers would, would be um, an example of that too, where it's like if you you read a word in a headline that had certain connotations, um, like from maybe the other side of the political spectrum from you, you'd be like, well, I'm not going to read this article, like because it's not compatible with me. Um, so either either one, um, and it's kind of like black or white, like it's either, you know, you check the box or, or you don't. And then sensitivity um, is kind of the opposite, where instead of everything remaining the same, everything changes. So um, the information changes in the transmission, the sender and the receiver. are They're not even sender and receiver in that point. They're kind of like two um, bodies that encounter each other and are, are exchanging this information. Um, they are also changed potentially by that encounter. Um, and so, you know, that's like an in, in-person conversation, even and especially about something difficult. Um, the example that I gave in the book was of a, an artist residency that I went to uh, in a very remote part of um, California where we didn't have, didn't really have TV there. We, didn't, we just weren't very connected <laughs> to the outside world. And so in, in lieu of entertainment uh, or whatever else we, we would be doing at night, uh, one of the residents and I would sit on the roof and just look at the stars um, or watch the sunset. And she was Catholic um, and from the Midwest and, and pretty conservative, certainly compared to me. And I'm not, I'm an atheist basically. And we would just sit up there for hours and just talk about, you know, science and religion. And, uh, and we disagreed. Um, but I have really, I, I have fond memories of those conversations where um, I really feel like I have a more nuanced understanding of her point of view and she probably does of mine as well and and we weren't kind of out certainly weren't out to like you know beat the other person at an argument and we weren't even really out to convince the other person like it was more just like a conversation where these two different viewpoints were were meeting and so there's another line from the book rewrite as the body disappears so does our ability to empathize and so you're talking about this concept of sensitivity you know, versus connectivity, right? Which is very much about, you know, kind of having real world 3D encounters with someone. Um, and I'm curious what you, what you meant by that phrase, because it seems sort of related to, to Berardi's idea, this um, concept that as the body disappears, so does our ability to empathize. If you're sitting across from someone, uh, or even just having a one-on-one conversation with someone, um, there their sort of reality as another person is more accessible to you than it would be if they're, you know, like a tiny circle on a screen. <laughs> um, and, and you kind of have to sit there with that kind of reality. Um, I, you know, it's like that classic thing of like, I, I always imagine people who write these really vitriolic comments online, like if they had to sit in a room with that person and say that to that person's face, I'm sure there are some really awful people who would still say it, but but I think it would feel very different. And so I think it matters that this kind of sensitivity and responsiveness and observation is coming out of a body that's observing another body and that the, those are responding to each other and adjusting in real time. Right. And so the danger of spending so much time in these online spaces is that you really um, become desensitized in a sense, right? Or even more comfortable kind of in your, you know, individualistic kind of very specific world view because you don't have to kind of really confront other people in, in all of their selves. 
yeah, that's why I have a whole um, kind of ode to the bus in the middle of the book um, to AC Transit because I, I live right by a bus stop um, and I, I frequently take the, the bus to my studio. And yeah, I just talk about how the bus is kind of one of the last spaces where we're thrown together with strangers. Um, although I have jury duty coming up, so that'll be another interesting example. But, um, you know, you're thrown together in a space um, with others who you have no um, instrumental reason to be around. So um, people who are not your friends or family or people you have any reason to be paying attention to. Um, and, you know, for me, that bus ride is just long enough that you, you know, it's just this reminder that um, there are other people on the bus and they have gotten on from wherever they, you know, started and they're getting off somewhere else and they have their reasons for going somewhere. And you can kind of extrapolate from that to this whole universe that exists for every person where there's things that they're worried about and there's things that they, you know, regret and there's things that they're excited about. And these are like, this. it's this whole kind of topography that I will never know. Um, and that to me feels so different than being kind of like stuck in the middle of a, of a personal brand kind of mentality where everything exists kind of like for or against you. Everything takes on its meaning in, in regards to you. And I find that kind of decentering feeling, not just to others on the bus, but, you know, ultimately to even, you know, non-human inhabitants of the places that I live. Um, it's just a relief to get outside of that. It, it Looking back at the kind of self-centered uh, or self-concerned even when it's you know filled with anxiety about other things it still feels like centered around the self um that that starts to look really claustrophobic this i'm haunted by this idea of like the like life is passing you by and you're not paying it attention um or that there are these kind of i don't want to call them opportunities but like you know things things around you that you that you could be changed by or it could be meaningful um or connections you could be making that um simply are not rendered to you in your reality um, because of this very stable and hyper-optimized pattern of attention that you've kind of learned. As I was chatting with Jenny, it was hard not to think of that oft-quoted Walt Whitman line, I am large, I contain multitudes, and how in so many ways we have made ourselves so small and circumscribed and one-dimensional through our willing submission to the bite-sized formats of social networks and the limited constraints of presenting yourself in a palatable format to untold amounts of strangers on the internet. So much of the richness of our humanity gets lost in translation. Or lost in transmission might be a more apt way of putting it. If social networks have taught us anything, it's an obsessive yearning to be our best self. But ironically, those same spaces might be the worst possible venues for realizing that self. Because they don't give us the time and space and context that are necessary for true understanding and lasting transformation. Maybe the true act of resistance is choosing to present yourself just as you are, in all your messiness, in all your multiplicity, in all of your physicalness, right here and right now. 
Just to give you a quick heads up, if you're a devoted listener, this second season of Hurry Slowly is starting to wind down. I've got two more episodes planned, and then I'll be going on break for the summer, after which I'll be back with a third season starting in October of this year. If you'd like to stay in touch over the summer whilst Hurry Slowly is on hiatus, I would encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. Much like this podcast, it's chock full of ideas on how to live a more meaningful, creative life in which you get to express all of your multitudes. And I only send it out every other week, so it's not going to max out your inbox. You can sign up at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. Once again, that's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter to tap into my brainwaves twice a month. As always, a big thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for composing our lovely theme music. If this episode gave you some new ideas, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. You'll find a handy link right down there in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And remember to take your time.